Hi there and welcome to Crime Time Inc. My name is Simon McLean. I'm a former murder squad detective here in Glasgow and in the west of Scotland, as well as having worked nationwide undercover and in surveillance operations for many years. Here is my partner in crime, Time Inc., Tom Wood, retired Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders Police. But a warning, you might struggle with this accent. <laughs> good day, everybody. Good day. My name's Tom, and I spent a long career in policing in the more genteel part of Scotland, the East Coast, near Edinburgh. I spent much of my early and middle years as a detective working on serious crime. Later, as a senior officer, I was involved in running big operations and major public order events. Simon and I are both writers, and we share an interest in true crime and what goes on behind the scenes. There'll be very few people with our insights and detailed knowledge. Good evening, Tom. Good evening, how are you? I'm good, thanks. You had a good weekend? Very nice, thank you. Very well. Tom, we've been speaking now about this horrible time in, in your career and a horrible time for Scotland, starting with Susan Maxwell in 1982. We had an in-depth look at Susan's background and the horrible circumstances of her abduction and her body being found 300 miles away down south. And of course, the the state of the police inquiry at that time. Then Caroline Hogg, poor Caroline, five-year-old taken from Portobello Beach on a Friday evening and similarly found not too far away from Susan down south. And last time we spoke, we spoke about the Sarah Harper abduction and murder, another horrible case. I'm thinking... Now that we've had a look, we've also had a look at how the police were moving into this computerised era, how we were being dragged into the the 20th century, if you like, the end of the 20th century, technology-wise, in order to cope with these multi-force and and, uh, geographic problems. By this time, the Sarah Harper inquiry's up and running. We've got this serial killer, obviously, at large. Tell me, what's the police psychology now? What's the state of the police inquiry by this stage? From 1986 to the late 80s and to 1990 was a very important time because it was a time when there was not a lot happening, but organisationally we were starting to very much get our act together and and enter into what we now recognise as being a very modern investigative pattern. So... From the very start, Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg were linked. They were identical in circumstances. Friday afternoon, July, um, where the bodies were deposited, snatched abductions. So these two were almost identical crimes, very, very similar victims. Now, Sarah Harper was a little different, and it wasn't a Friday. Um, It wasn't in July, and the body had been deposited in a river nearby. The body was found or recovered in the River Trent, near Nottingham, but very close to where the other bodies had been found. The other bodies had been found in a kind of a a deposition triangle near the town of Ashby de la Zeus, which is in the north of England. Now, for a while, the, the West Yorkshire police, who were dealing with the abduction and murder of Sarah, they weren't convinced that these crimes were linked, and I remember the, the head of CID there, a, a very, very powerful individual called John Stainthorpe, he didn't at first accept that they were part of a linked investigation. And I think a bit of that was the fact they didn't want to lose the control 
of one of his own crimes. And you and I both know how jealously local police chiefs and local detective chief superintendents kept their murders. They didn't want other people interfering in them. Eventually, because of where Sarah's body had been deposited and because of the close proximity to where the others had been deposited, he was convinced. And after a, a week or so, yeah. Sorry, Tom, where was Sarah taken from? She was taken from just outside Leeds, a place called Morley, which is actually part of Leeds in West Yorkshire. And where she was recovered from the river was in Nottinghamshire. It's about 70-odd miles away. So again, there wasn't the same distance and there wasn't the connection with Scottish border. So you can understand why John Stainthorpe was reluctant or was questioning the link, because as we've discussed before, there's nothing worse than linking murders together which are not linked. That can really send the investigation up a one-way street. The circumstances of Sarah's abduction were also a little different from Caroline and Susan in that they had both been out on a sunny Friday afternoon in the middle of the summer, in the July, dressed in summer clothes. Sarah's abduction was different. It wasn't a, a, a Friday, I think it was a, a Tuesday, and it was earlier in the year. And she was sent out to do some messages just around the corner to buy a pint of milk, I think it was. So it looked very much more like a local issue than perhaps the other ones which had happened in busy parts or on main roads. So there was some concern about it, but the reason the reason it was linked was because of where her body was found. And while we were not sure where she was put in the river, because of course her body may have been carried down some distance, we believed it wasn't too far away and therefore she was in that same area. So the investigation was linked. And that was hugely important because that opened up a chest of funding and it opened up an awareness and a, a real responsibility by the forces in England and Wales. Because up to then, Susan and Caroline were Scottish girls, or on the borders of Scotland anyway, but this was different because Sarah was one of their own girls abducted and deposited in them. So you could almost hear the alarm bells ringing. Was Sarah recovered quicker? Remember we discussed that Susan and Caroline had been July, obviously warm. It was 10 or 12 days before the body, bodies were found and there had been a lot of decomposition. Was that the same with Sarah Harper or was there a chance of more forensic evidence being gathered? Her body was eventually found almost a month later in Nottinghamshire, which was some distance away, but nothing like the hundreds of miles away that our girls in Scotland had been found. It wasn't quite as warm, and she was in water, which preserves in some ways and, and doesn't in others. I've been listening to other true crime programmes and things that other people do, Tom. They seem to focus simply on the bare facts, as they've probably been announced at the time or what's been given to the press at the time. I, I just want to impress on anyone listening that what we're getting here is the nuances of a case. As far as we can, obviously you weren't there at the Locus or down south or anything like that, but we're getting an inside track here that's not available to everyone, especially from yourself with these, this big inquiry. That's now spanned seven years and moving into the late 80s is still ongoing. Still this three incident rooms, if you like, up and down the country, having to having to communicate with each other, because that's the bit that really impresses me, that it's hard enough for one incident room to run properly and be kept managed properly and run properly without three independent of each other 
and all the communication that requires. Well, it was. It would have been impossible. I mean, there were now six police forces involved um, from Scotland down through England. Uh, and frankly, that would have been impossible. But fortunately, uh, the Home Office recognised that. And the Chief Inspector of Constabulary in 1987, the year after Sarah's death, said that all the incident rooms had to be linked with computer. And the Home Office actually released a quarter of a million pounds to enable that to happen. Now, at that time, that was a lot of money, and it enabled every force involved to buy the appropriate computer equipment and to install Homes One, which was the, the very earliest manifestation of the home system as we know it today. So by 1987, that was all in place. And in addition, the Child Murder Bureau had been set up in Bradford to act as a kind of a an oversight over the regional incident rooms and to send out to Interpol, to Europol, to the FBI, to whoever there was in law enforcement, actually to tell them what we were doing and what was happening so that there was anything happening in their countries, which was similar, because, of course, we didn't know whether this man was operating in the continent of Europe. He could have been operating right across Western Europe, for all we knew. I became a beneficiary of that system about five or six years later, when I had a horrific run of indecencies that were committed where I was working in an island off the mainland. And when we, when you caught him, he was in the forces. And I used the bureau you're talking about, and it turned out they had committed a lot of offences in different places in Germany where he had been based. But that was only through that bureau that we learned of that, uh, ultimately. Anyway, we'll probably cover that in future. So back to 1988, coming into the 90s. Well, in, in 1988, there was an incident which was interesting. It was a, an attempted abduction, which gave us an insight. Again, it was in a July. It was near Nottingham, where Sarah Harper's body had been found. So it was in that area. And the victim was a very, very small girl. She was only 4 foot 10, 4 foot 11, but she was 15 years of age. 15? She was 15 years of age, yeah. Thanks. And what happened there, she was walking up the street, Again, in a sort of summer, uh, Friday afternoon, when a van drew up ahead of her and the driver got out, put up the bonnet of the, the van, and as she came by, said to her, do you know anything about car engines or van engines? Now, think about it. It was a ridiculous thing to ask a young girl, but this was him trying to establish a conversation. And she said no, and as she moved away, he grabbed her. Grabbed her in what she described as a bear hug. However, this girl was a feisty wee soul, and as I say, she was 15 and quite strong. So she struggled, and she bit this person, and the guy reeled back, shouted, you bitch, or something like that, and was closing in for another attack on her when one of her friends came running to her assistance. And the guy immediately jumped in a van and drove away. And he was described as being a man of about five foot seven, five foot eight, of dirty, scruffy appearance, dark hair and balding. And from all the incidents, and of course, we were looking carefully at all these incidents that took place, the hundreds and hundreds of suspicious occurrences and minor indecencies that took place, and we were looking at them all, but of, of all of them, this was the one that we thought, this looks most likely. The thing is, what we were looking for here was a snatch abductor who was not planning. These were targets of opportunity. Susan Maxwell and Caroline and Sarah, 
it wasn't a case of their abductors watching them for patterns of behaviour and then intercepting them. There was no planning involved in any of these crimes because these three girls were in places at times which they weren't normally. So we knew they were spur of the moment, targets of opportunity. And therefore, what we didn't know and what worried the hell out of us, of course, was how many times was this man trying to abduct children? We knew from the FBI profile, I remember the FBI profile said quite chilling that from the behaviours, particularly at Caroline Hogg, which, remember, was in a crowded seaside resort, this man's lust for children overcame his sense of danger or fear. This was a guy that was so driven by this desire to catch these children that he was a risk taker. And so we didn't know how many times he tried and failed. We didn't know how many times he'd been chased away, how many times a girl had run away from him, how many times he'd been about to pounce when somebody came round the corner. We had no idea. But we did believe from what we knew of him that he would come again. Was this the first time a white van was mentioned? No, it wasn't the first time a white van was mentioned. There were vans of various descriptions and colours mentioned. And of course, you know, over a period of, well, by that, by that time it was six years, almost exactly, since uh, Susan Maxwell had been abducted. It's very unlikely that if he was a delivery driver, he'd be driving the same vehicle because these people, a lot of them, they have access to any number of vehicles which are in the pool of whatever the transport company was. We had a lot of sightings of vans of various sizes, all mid-sized vans, but we weren't particularly tied down to a particular colour or a particular type. And there was no livery or anything like that on the van, no idea of uh, what direction he headed off, Nothing. there was nothing more came from that. Do you now think that was the same guy? Yes. It wasn't the first description we had had. We had a description of a man who was seen with Caroline Hogg, or a girl like Caroline Hogg, on the promenade on the Friday evening that she was abducted. But looking at his behaviour with Susan Maxwell and looking at the behaviour with Sarah Harper, we began to believe that, in fact, it wasn't Caroline Hogg and it wasn't our suspect. In fact, we traced, we traced hundreds of people who were in and on the promenade of Portobello on that day in 1983, and one of them was a scruffy-looking guy with his granddaughter who looked kind of like Caroline. She was a wee blonde girl of five years old. And so we were never convinced of that. We still didn't think that what happened with Susan Maxwell, that there was any kind of discourse, that there was any kind of conversation. We thought this was a, a snatch abduction and we believed that Caroline Hogg's abduction would be the same. So we were sceptical about some of these descriptions that we had. But we were sure about the one in 1988. That MO, that modus operandi, that snatched abduction was exactly the same pattern as we would have expected to see with Susan and Caroline and Sarah. And because the girl was petite, he's mistaken her for somebody younger, for a younger girl than what she actually was. And she was mature enough to put up a fight there and then. I was thinking about it today, Tom. I was down in Ayrshire with my grandson and the family. And we were down at Air Pier watching the Waverley coming in and waving to everyone and having some fun, taking some photographs. There must have been only a couple of hundred families there. But I was thinking about exactly what you're talking about, that if you went back to it afterwards and started, everybody had a kid. 
or two kids. A lot of descriptions of a wee girl of five would be almost identical, you know, summer dress, ponytails, whatever it might be. So that kind of puts it in perspective about the, the needle and the haystack. But as you say, the important thing was that he didn't waste any time. He snatched them in the van, and as we'll find out shortly, he had the tools in the van to suppress them very, very quickly thereafter. Do you think it's time to move on to the luckiest wee girl in the world then, in the Scottish borders in 1991? In 1990, yep. 1990, sorry. You asked about the investigation. Well, here's the thing. We were getting nowhere in terms of our proactive investigations. In terms of our investigating teams going out and interviewing people, we had no serious suspects, we had no one in the frame, we had all the traps set, we had all the nets in places, we had all the communication systems worked out. We knew exactly what we were going to do and how we were going to do it when he came again, but we were waiting for him. We were in a holding pattern, and that was the truth of it. After 1988, we were convinced he would come again, as we'd always been convinced he would come again because of the way these people offend. They're driven. They're driven by their obsession. So he would come again. It was just a case of where and when. And we had to make sure that even after all these years, and by 1990, we'd been doing this for eight long years, we had to be sure that by 1990, by eight years later, that we were all on our toes. Otherwise, he would slip the net again. And tragically, some other child might forfeit their life. So the 14th of July, 1990, Friday afternoon, late afternoon, lovely sunny day, just exactly the right time, exactly the right place, the Scottish borders, exactly the right month, exactly the right day of the week, he came again. And this time, the result was different. Mid-afternoon in the little town of Stow. Stow is a, a little village which literally, there's a main road runs through it and there's houses to the right and left and there's a few houses up the back of it. But it's a very, very small town in the borderlands of Scotland on the A7 which was one of the arterial routes, again, running north to south from England into Scotland. This, again, is significant because of what we know about his transport methods and the routes he used. A very ordinary man is working in his garden in Stow, and he's a local worthy. I met him many times. He's dead now, poor man. I'm not going to mention his name, but he was a local worthy who made sure that he knew everything that was going on. He was one of these people who you absolutely depend on in small communities because if there's anybody needing help, he'd be there. If there was any gossip going around, he would hear it. But he was one of these mainstays of the community and a very popular man. So he's working in his garden. And as I said to you, really, in the village of Stow, the main road and there's houses on either side and there's not much else. So he was working in his garden and he sees this wee girl walking up the road who he knows. He knows her mum and dad, he knows who she is, and she's walking up the road coming from the local school. What age was she, Tom? Uh, she was 10. So as she's walking up the road, he sees a van drawing up beside her, a medium-sized goods van drawn up beside her, and stopping. And then he sees her legs disappearing underneath the van. The van is between him and the wee girl, and he sees her feet and legs disappearing 
into the van and the van drives off north. The vehicles come from the south and it drives off north up towards the central part of Scotland. Now, great presence of mind. He notes the registered number of the vehicle and he gets it right. And you and I know how infrequent that is. People in panic um, get the numbers transposed and all this. But he notes the number and he knows who the girl's mother is. So he phones the girl's mother because he thought maybe she was getting a lift from somebody or thought, thought it was unlikely. But anyway, he phoned the girl's mother and said, I've just seen her lassie disappearing into a van, you know, heading up towards the central part of Scotland. And the mother immediately knows what to do. And without panicking, with great presence of mind, she immediately phones the police station because her husband's on duty that day. He's on duty and she thinks he may be in the station. He's not in the station. He's out on mobile patrol. But the police station immediately alert him. And at the same time, they press the alarm button and put Operation Child Watch into, into being. Now, you'll recall, I've described this before, Operation Child Watch was... Um, Hector Clark initiated it, and it was a system whereby if anybody was abducted, then uh, there would be a, immediately uh, police officers would go to key traffic points, key junctions on the roads between Scotland and England to stop and search cars. So, you know, just freeze frame that for a minute and just think, what's in that man's mind? He's driving this car. He's got a mate with him. He's got another policeman with him. He's driving their own local inquiries. He's driving that car. And he gets this phone call via the control room from his wife saying that this man who they know has just seen his daughter being abducted and taken into a vehicle that they have no knowledge of. Now, remember that everybody is on alert for child abduction. You could not be a police officer in that vicinity without you know all about child abductions. So think what's in that man's mind as he drives the eight miles down the narrow wee country roads in his wee car. He's not in a big fast car. It's a wee patrol car as he drives down to the main street of Stow. And in fact, I spoke to him about it later. And he, he said he has no memory at all of that drive. He meets the informant. The guy's standing there exactly where he has been before and they're standing literally in the middle of the road talking about what's happened, this vehicle, where it's gone. But this time the control room, of course, have broadcast all points, broadcast for this vehicle, its description, where it's heading and cars, police cars from every part of the, the area are descending on Stow and are descending on the A7 and blocking the A7 further up the road as it's getting to Edinburgh. So the whole Child's Watch thing is put into operation instantly and the Chief Inspector in the Information Room, the Ops Room at Lothian Border Headquarters of FETES, has taken over control of it and this all happens within minutes of the actual abduction taking place. And as they're standing there talking about it, the wee girl's father, his mate and the informant, the man who's made the call, they see the van coming back down the road towards them, coming back down the road south. And the informant says to the policeman, there's the van there. That's the van there. 
So he simply steps out in the middle of the road, stops the vehicle. Stops the vehicle, makes sure it can't go any further, drags the driver out of the vehicle, and straight away goes round to the back of the van, opens up the van, nothing to be seen. Big pile of junk, delivery materials, cardboard boxes, just the general rubbish you'd see in the back of a, a sort of delivery van, parcels and bits and pieces. Nothing obvious. But they search and they rummage through just to make sure, and right in the bottom of the van, underneath all this boxes and stuff like that, is a thing that looks like a, a sleeping bag or a, a bag or a sack, and they open the sack, and here's the wee girl. Now, you and I both know, Simon, <laughs> to our cause probably, just how small a child can make themselves. If you're looking for a child, they can squeeze themselves into tiny, tiny spaces that you would never think possible. Well, the wee lass was lying absolutely flat. But he dragged her out. She was bound and gagged and hardly breathing. And they released the sticky tape from her mouth and she started to recover consciousness. Yeah. Now, by this time, of course, the cavalry have arrived. There's reinforcements there. And the driver of the van is arrested. And that man is Robert Black, who we will hear a lot more about in time to come. And that is the first time that the police have laid hands or even known of the existence in this investigation of Robert Black. And when the van is examined, it's found to be kitted out for abduction. There are gags, there are tyings, all there at hand in the van, ready for instant deployment. This is an abduction vehicle which has been purposefully fitted out for that purpose. And um, I, I remember it distinctly because this was all put on our four summations and, of course, it comes up to us. And I was, I was working in the west side of the force in, in West Lothian at the time and I saw this coming up, this description. And I phoned Hector Clark straight away. He was the deputy chief constable at the time. I was a chief super. I phoned him up and said, I said, boss, this is your man. This has got to be your man. And he says, Tommy says, this is him. He says, this is him. This is what we have been waiting for. This is the, the trap was sprung. And Hector later told me, he said, for the first time in eight years, he said he went home and he got an undisturbed night's sleep, uh, knowing that, that this man was in custody. Because from what happened, the place, the time, the modus operandi, the type of guy he was, the fitting out of the van, everything, everything was absolutely right. This was, this was the man. But now, of course, we had to prove it. And that, as you know, is a difficult matter. Well, people, especially on television, Tom, everything you see, somebody gets arrested and the next thing you see, they're at court. The next, within a frame, really. You and I both know that real life's a wee bit different from that. That quite often, when you, when you get the hair, which you've just done, or the the force have just done, we've just done collectively. That's when the real work starts because now it's not a general inquiry looking for 
the slightest hint of a suspect to go and speak to. Now we've got somebody that we can go and look for the actual evidence of where he's been, what he's been driving, where he might have been captured on CCTV or committed other crimes, what he might have in his home, his relatives, his friends, his associates, his workplace. All of that then has to be looked at to look for scraps of evidence that finally can be presented to support the case against him. Did you get involved in that at all? No, had you moved on by that time? No, I wasn't involved in the part that came later, but I have a fair knowledge of it. You're talking about there about the fictional representations. I was used to, as we all did in the day, we used to watch Kojak. Kojak always finished up in a grand shootout where the ground was littered in bodies and where Kojak puts a lollipop in his mouth and goes away home. <laughs> he loves you, baby. And I found, I found myself saying, hang on a minute, this is where, this is where the work starts. He just went and started the next one, the next series then. I need to ask you, I'm relieved now that we've caught Robert Black. I've kind of, the pressure's off, kind of off here now that we've got him. Um, we can have a wee night out before we go on to the next bit and talk about how we're going to prove <laughs> this case against him. Yeah, I asked you yeah. before about your mentors and about people that you looked up to in your career, people who you, you admired and, and learned from. I need to ask you about your fictional detective hero. Who would that be? Because you mentioned Kojak. I don't think you modelled yourself on him. Uh, no, the original is the best, the Sherlock Holmes type of guy. In many respects, Ian Rankin's made a very, very good job of characterising a lot of facets of detectives in Rebus. And I said to Ian Rankin himself, I have known detectives with all the facets of character and behaviour that Rebus yeah. has got. Oh, yeah. But fortunately, not combined in the same person. <laughs> so that would have been a disaster. Well, my hero would have been, there'll be no surprise here. Some people will be just a shrug of the shoulders, but I always liked Columbo. I, I would never live it down if I didn't, didn't mention Harry Bosch, <laughs> uh, Michael Connolly's creation, because either, That's right. either they all matter or none of them matter at all. They're all interesting. But, but of course, in, in truth, yeah, we got Robert Black. But then, how are we going to prove all these cases against him? Because we fancied him strongly for the three murders, but we knew it was quite likely he was responsible for other serious crimes. But of course, once somebody's in custody, the clock's running, and you've got to bring him to court, etc., etc. However, we were fortunate in that the crime that he'd been arrested for and caught for red-handed, literally red-handed, was so serious that he was remanded in custody for that and he was kept in custody and there were legal proceedings advanced for that abduction on its own. There was a risk here because, of course, in Scotland, that meant that we could not combine that with the other cases, but there was the pressure of time. And so on balance, it was decided to go forward uh, and he appeared and pled guilty. At the High Court, Lord Ross, Lord Justice Clark, who's a great judge, I think he's still alive, uh, he's long retired now, and Robert Black received a life sentence for the abduction in Stow. Now, that was unusual, a life sentence for the crime of abduction, but the circumstances were so serious and so sinister, and it was very clear that that wee girl was minutes or seconds away from losing her life, that the court and Lord Ross took the view 
that the crime was so serious that he was given a life sentence. And therefore, we had him. And we could take our time to build the case against him. And we needed time to build what transpired to be a very elaborate and a very well-crafted circumstantial case. Now, I say that I wasn't involved in that aspect of it, so this is not self-praise. But I think, you know, looking back at it now, the job of work that Hector Clark did and the people who came after 1990, particularly Roger Orr, who I'll mention again later down the road, a tremendous detective, a great investigator, and they pieced together the most elaborate circumstantial case against Robert Black. And this is where all the work over those eight years comes to fruition, Tom, where the meticulous gathering of evidence and statements and sightings and all the all the strands or spokes of the inquiry come together when you have to build the case for court. You mentioned the time restrictions on the police there. Maybe we should just clarify that because it won't be obvious to other people that are not familiar with Scottish criminal procedure. This is obviously a solemn case. It was a petition case, as we would call it. Tell us about the time restrictions then. From his original arrest, he has to appear in court on the first lawful day. Take us through that first few months. Well, the, the first lawful day and then and again seven days later and then again there's various time markers you have to hit, but he cannot be kept in custody any longer than 110 days before he is put to trial. Now, of course, if we had waited and if we had put the abduction case with all the other cases, there's no way we would have got that altogether within 110 days. So it was a pragmatic and the sensible decision to say, look, We've got him red-handed for the abduction of this wee girl in Stow. Let's go on that and let's secure this man. And then we've got plenty of time. We can sit back and we can build this case in the sure and certain knowledge that he's safe in custody, in prison, and he's not going to endanger the lives of any other children. Tom, you've done such a fantastic story here, a job of telling this story, that I think I'll sleep a wee bit better tonight as well. <laughs> now they've got him locked up. Next time we'll have a look at the man himself, at this animal, if you like, and a bit of insight into his background and, and how he came to be the beast that he became. And, of course, the case itself, the building of the case and the eventual outcome of those trials, etc. Meantime, my friend, I wish you well, and we'll speak soon. Good night. Thank you very much. Next time on Crime Time Inc. He's a real loner and a real oddball. Interestingly, he never threw anything out. So, for instance, uh, if he'd bought a hamburger on the motorway six months earlier, the receipt would be somewhere in his flat. And what the defence tried to do was to steal the prosecution's thunder by coming out and saying, look, this guy's not perfect. He's a reprehensible character, but that doesn't make him a murderer. And you have got to be sure beyond all reasonable doubt that he is a murderer and not just a, a sexual pervert.